Hello everyone, welcome to From Nordic Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Today we wrap up our series on existential philosophers. For now. <laughs> as we walk through both time and the development of subjective philosophy, I hope that you as listeners have learned and enjoyed it as much as I have. If you have, it may seem like a small thing to you, maybe even just a fun listen during your commute. However, Jennifer Gassetti Ferenci would argue that it could be much more, especially if you're engaging with it. Today, we'll look at why. So it's funny, um, I was talking to you before we started, and um, I was listening to uh, one of her lectures and, and, and kind of diving a little bit deeper into it, mm-hmm. and I... I really wanted to come back and rewrite that intro, um, just just to incorporate an example um, based off some of the things that she's she's said, you know. Um, but I'll I'll save the example for later. Okay. okay. As, as we as we dive into it, so sure. let's start off. Um, Gassetti Frenchy um, is the first currently practicing philosopher we've looked at. So, um, yes. what can you tell us about her? Well, uh, um, Mitch, Mary, well, no, Mary Mitchley, never mind. We, we she was, was close. close. She was close. close. That's right, <laughs> right, right. I, I, I'm wishful thinking. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I, I'm going to start out prefacing this. This is the exciting part of this for me is because one always continues to learn. And uh, sometimes in philosophy, one is so read uh, and continues to read in the past, the far past, the near past, the, the classics, and so on, um, that you sometimes forget to keep track of what's going on right right now. And and so I'm, I'm very glad to have read of her and then uh, downloaded a couple of her books so that I could begin to get to, to know something of what she's saying. And it's fascinating. She's a great writer. And and she's very accessible. As some people, I know, comments from the books are saying, "Well, this this is really sick and really difficult." Well, only if you want it to be. I mean, if you, you know, it, it, that's a that's a completely individual judgment, of course. Um, but she she teaches at John Hop, Johns Hopkins. She has a chair in German and philosophy there. She's obviously an international, well-lived person uh, who has a lot of work in front of her still, I should say. I think she's, she's published a few books, but she is quite, from my viewpoint, young. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, beginning to really stretch out there. And the, and the two books that I am finding fascinating are, are one is called On Being and Becoming, and it's uh, it's an exist. The subtitle is an existentialist approach to life. So it's right along what we're talking. We've been talking about and leading up to it. And the other is the life of imagination, uh, revealing and making the world. Hmm. And since you and I often talk about the creative process, uh, so I I disclaimer large here. I am I'm. I'm I have started both of these books. I'm well into both of these books, but I'm not going to attempt to overly speak for what she's saying anymore. That I've, it's, it's always we summarize, we do these kernels and so on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, it. We we're we're looking at her and her philosophy, but really, like we do with a lot of things, we're going to sort of extrapolate it out and connect it with things we've talked about in the past and and look at speculative aspects of it you know thing ask questions 
philosophically and, and go about it that way. It's not meant to be a, a strictly biographical or, uh, you know, literal interpretation of, of right. her life or what, or what she's, she's, what she's obviously, if she's working for Johns Hopkins, she's got a chair in philosophy and German. She's cross disciplinary. She, you, you, she, her, a couple of her interviews or lectures are, are available on YouTube and, but she's not widely out there in the public sphere yet, but she is quite well published in the academic sphere. And I think that what she's, to me, uh, these books are saying, let's, let's extend beyond the academic. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I always appreciate scholars who do that. That's how I've tried to live. And I think that that's uh, honorable because she talks about, you don't have to be an academic in order to think about X, Y, or Z. And that's often what we talk about. And it's exciting because she's practicing now. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she has a very broad um, knowledge base. Do you want to describe sort of her academic background? Because that's the thing is, like, like you were saying, she's she mentioned that you don't have to be an academic to enjoy this stuff, but like she's she's got an academic titan. She's got quite a resume. Uh, yeah, yes, she does. And and I I think that well, I'm going to just talk about a couple of her uh, book titles, but uh, descriptions of them. In Life of the Imagination: Revealing and Making the World, her imagination, she says, allows us to step out of the ordinary, but also to transform it through our sense of wonder and play, artistic inspiration, innovation, or the eureka moment of a scientific breakthrough. And in the book, she gives us a brand new way of trying to see how everyday experience is intersecting with the the very deep or or high uh, experience of, of creative achievement. So it's the it's placing the imagination not in the hands of just famous artists or or artists. She acknowledges artists and that process and says things are on different scales. But what she's saying is essentially existential in and and thus drawing upon that whole previous uh, pedigree that we've been talking about because. The act of imagination transforms or cause one's, one's, causes oneself, however short or long a time, to transcend what one was before engaging in that creative act. Hmm. It takes you into a different space. Yeah. yeah. And I think you and I can both acknowledge that and probably lots of people listening can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for some background, she's um, she studied at Oxford. Um, mm-hmm. She's got a doctor of philosophy, modern languages and literature, German. Um, she's been at Columbia, Villanova, like very, yes, very big schools. Big schools. So it's not like yes. this is, you know, somebody just, just writing books. And, and that's something that in the academic community is, is sort of frowned upon. Like, why don't write a book, do a peer reviewed paper so that we can all right. sort of, which yeah. she's done. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah. so yeah, that's what I'm trying to stress is that yeah, she yeah. has, um, academic credibility. Um, yep. she is, you know, definitely a, a legitimate, um, philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I'll use the example that I was thinking about. I wanted to rewrite the intro for because I think that it fits in here really well. Um, she mentioned in, in a lecture that I was listening to that um, I forget who was one of the classical philosophers. Um, sort of said, you know, hey, you shouldn't. Um, we shouldn't really focus on tragedy 
you know, within um, literature because it, it evokes too many emotions, you know, right? And I thought, you know what a good example of that is, is horror movies, right? <laughs> so when you watch a horror movie, um, you know, I think that most people would say, well, it's not real. It's not real. And that, that may even be how they reassure themselves. But the fact of it is, if you're watching a horror movie and you're getting scared and you're experiencing these emotions, yes, in some part of your physiology and in, in your subjective experience, it is real, isn't it? It is. It's a, if it's, and I think that she would say that that's where the phenomenology comes in, the phenomenological and the existential intersect. And she she emphasizes that in in her book on, on being and becoming, but. Yeah, if you, if phenomenology, a quick side note, just we've talked about it before. If uh, that your consciousness intersects with objects and events, and you observe and you study and you describe what you're seeing or what you're experiencing, but you don't necessarily come, you don't come to a a, a strong value judgment. You're just just intersecting with it. Well, in a horror film. We've had any film, but we'll stay with the horror film. <laughs> you've, you've given yourself to this space. Yes, people will sit and reassure themselves. No, it's not real. But you're still there, and and your body is responding, your heart rate or whatever. Sometimes the sound happens, whack, something's behind you, and, and so on. And And that is your imagination interacting with the imaginative imagery, the combination of soundtrack and and sound effects and the visual all working through the director's vision but that intersects with your own mm -hmm. what you, what you tend to notice or what you look away from because you don't want to see it or your ears are particularly you know, my wife and I talk about the squish content yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so yes you're going to respond to it right and so with with a horror movie and I think that I think that Example sprung into my mind because I saw somebody post something um, on on social media today. They said, "I wish for once they'd make a horror movie where the protagonists weren't dumb, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that I could scream at my my TV less, and I'd also actually be more scared because I feel like it could really happen." Right? So I think that's a bit where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, but I dive into what we're saying. Um, Gossetti French, she, she, a lot of her study focuses on, on literature. And really within the realm of literature, it's even more fascinating than movies, right? Because yeah, like yes. you were just saying, with movies, you have a lot of things dictated to you. You have visuals, you have, um, audio, you have camera angles, you have all of these things that are setting, um, a scene for you. <laughs> In literature, it's your imagination doing the majority of the work. And so, um, I know she's done, um, you know, she's looked at, uh, Franz Kafka, right. Yes, Who's yes. one of my favorite authors, man, reading, <laughs> like reading the castle, right. Or the trial, these things will just give you this existential dread. Yes. And you want, <laughs> and it's coming back to like what that guy was saying on social media, right. It's because I can picture this happening in real life, right? Mm -hmm. This just bureaucratic, drawn-out nightmare that ruins your life. Like that, this is a threat that is realistic, you know. Yep. Um, another one uh, that I tend to think of is, um, oh, uh, Lovecraft, right? Uh. You know, Lovecraft, <laughs> just the master. You know, he's of 
of making you scared without ever spelling anything out for you. you know? Right. With, uh, using an incredible extensive vocabulary, mm-hmm. sometimes to his own detriment, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but masterful in, in that way. And yes, yeah, so I'm a Lovecraft scholar. I'm going to, I'm with you on that. Uh, even though it's, it's not. Uh, it's he's out of fashion right now and out of favor because of because of some of his worldviews when he was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a separate discussion. You're right. It it, it brings us in. She says in in uh, the life of the imagination, the uh, the main focus of this book is a, is looking at imagination as a transformative power, which helps human beings reveal the world or come to understand it in light of possibilities. And to make the world or to shape the reality before us by regarding and changing it in new ways, integrating possibilities with what is given. So she's taking a dread is one thing, but she's but she's also saying in her other book, this interesting cross reading that was always cross read, is is she's saying essentially, you know, existentialism isn't one thing. There are whole braided numbers of things, and it has a very complicated background. But it's not all about anxiety and dread. That was that was Sartre's thing. De Beauvoir's thing was more about engaging with the other and not just myself or the other, the way Sartre was talking about. And, and, and this, and the possibilities for joy or for the transcendence. You can have transcendence through fear. You can have transcendence through joy or any other extreme or spectrum of emotion and but when she says that about integrating possibilities shaping the reality before us and going back to your example of of the horror film walk out of a horror film where where you're the the protagonist happens to have really negative experiences in a rural landscape and then drive home in wyoming county and wonder what's in the shadows right it's almost like for a moment for a little while it, if it lingers you're reshaping your reality um, because of the input of of whether it's the film or the literature the the classic example of sitting i think you've done i've done it many I, you read i read sherlock holmes when i can on halloween it's just a thing and if it's a thunderstorm so much the better sometimes then i go back to lovecraft and so you're just inviting the elements to go scare me yeah. <laughs> and it does change how you view look out the window for a moment yeah yeah it has a it has a noticeable effect on our subjective reality so um kierkegaard had religion and start had the absurd and the Beauvoir and, and had, yeah, yeah. had uh had feminism um what do you think would would be that the core of um what makes cassetti frenchie's flavor of existentialism unique i think that she is well this is probably goofy but i think she's making jazz i think she's making really fresh new wine She's taking elements that she has thoroughly thought about and examined and analyzed uh, with the humility that she's, I see in her writing. She knows 
that she's intelligent. She's not whacking us over the head with it, but she she's thought a lot about these things and she's trying to share them. And I think so, so you can take elements of each of the Heidegger, Kierkegaard, Camus, Sartre, de Beauvoir. And she goes through many others, Carl Jaspers and people who fell out of Heidegger. Heidegger associated himself essentially with part of the Nazi movement, so he fell out of favor for a long time, and understandably. But there's still ideas there, and she go and she explains these things in her other book. Um, so, so she's compressing, uh, teasing out various flavors and all, and pulling it into the current. And it's not just her, but I think, but she has her own take on it. The current return. To, to seeing as, 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 as Sartre and de Beauvoir did, to practice existentialism or bring it to people by putting it through art. And part of the reason that, that Sartre and, and de Beauvoir and, and Camus certainly were, part of the reason it became popular is because they weren't just lecturing. They were writing creatively. They were writing letters. They were writing essays. They were writing short stories. They were writing plays. They were writing movie, <laughs> you know, scripts. And so that reached out to a much broader and more immediate landscape. And I and she she writes poetry. She she demurs about her poetry, but it's, she writes poetry. And and she's her so her take is pulling in all those other strands together, squeezing a bit and saying, I think, saying, let's understand what making, using the imagination does to shape and change the way we make decisions about what we do, which is partly what existentialism is. Yeah, that, that was a, a really great way of putting that. And from what I've, what I've read and what I've seen, I think that it's, it's very accurate. Um, our other existentialists have um, blurred the boundary between philosopher and writer, and she really kind of steers into this, doesn't she? She does. <laughs> she very much does, yeah. Um, so we talked about phenomenology with some of our other um, philosophers. Um, do you want to go a little bit in more depth about how she integrates it in her philosophy? Yes. But, so... Let's say, let's take it from the art, the imaginative. Uh, we, and we'll go to the things we use as our touch bases. Uh, so I, I make art. I love to make a variety of kinds of art, but ultimately it's, uh, there, there are lots of things going on. Art doesn't have to be strictly representational, but let's, let's take representation and work it out a little bit. So I encounter a model. And maybe it's a model live or a model through photograph. And my art teacher is, is marvelous because she's taught me over years to, to keep the mantra of don't draw what you think you see, draw what you see. And that sounds simplistic, but it really isn't. There's almost a Zen cone going on there. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but it is, but it is that, but that very exhortation causes one to look hard, much more than one might otherwise, and to see the planes on the face, you know, the, to see the geometry of shadow, and to to notice that I, you know, I here we are. You have this 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 
barrier we have because we're being careful because of COVID. And, and I look at your face and I do not see a complete pupil. But if I were to draw, oh, but I know the eye is there and I know the general shape and I'm going to draw the eye and I'm going to draw all the details, I'd be putting in what I think that I see, but that's not what I see. And there's not as much detail there as one would uh, be driven to put in. Okay, so that's phenomenology. Uh, you as an object or, 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 or uh, not objectification, but a point of study, uh, I have to report and describe with my sketch pencils what I am seeing. And that really is true of music, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny, I was watching um, a series that I love on Netflix is Explained. I don't know if you've seen any of those. Hmm. Little short 20-minute episodes of they'll take a topic and then they'll go through the whole history of it and explain it. The one I was watching yesterday was on chess, and they did this really good job of um, using chess as an analogy for um, painting, comparing huh. the two over time. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how much you can learn about chess, but um, there's there's actually periods of time in chess play that reflect certain strategies. Um, and so in, in painting, they, they compared them. They said, you know, up until, you know, the mid-20th century, um, people were trying to play it more and more accurately mm -hmm. and they said um you know much like painting painting got more and more accurate and they said until it was boring right <laughs> and they showed a, a painting of a you know um just a field with like hay bales and stuff and the painting it's, i mean the painting was fantastic it was very accurate um but they're referring to the subject matter right like why do i want to look at a field of hay bales now you know obviously that's up to the individual person on whether or not they consider it um, aesthetic or and there, and there, value. Just, just quickly, I'm not going to interrupt you, but there's your existential crossover. Right. Yeah. You're making a choice about what you want to dwell on. Yeah. And that's going to be very individual. Um, a, another good example, my, my wife's grandma lives in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. So when she comes here, she's fascinated by the cows. She says, wow, look at those cows, right? <laughs> cows are her favorite animal. If you're from Western New York, that's not the way you think. <laughs> you have a very hard time finding um, the special, unique value in seeing a cow, right? Mm -hmm. But it's there. It's there for certain people and, and under certain circumstances. Yep. Um, so anyways, the, this documentary is talking about, okay, so chess got boring, you know? So then players started playing differently, right? And they started ha opening up with different gambits, trying different things and, and all this and all this different stuff. Yeah. yeah. And um, what they were saying is that, um, you know, before you had these computers like Deep Blue and, and these things that could beat the grandmasters, right? These, you know, whether you're using AI or just algorithms or whatever to, to figure out how to play chess, when humans were doing it, right, you have gambits opening gambits, which mm -hmm. are, you know, a pattern or a foundation on which to play. But really what they found is chess masters, they're not thinking 20 moves ahead like you think they are. As a matter of fact, one of the masters that they asked, how many moves ahead are you thinking? He said, one, the right one. So, you know, <laughs> so playing chess from a human perspective is a very creative imaginative thing spontaneous even exactly you have all of these different pieces they all move in different ways the configurations of the board in some cases can be 
over several several hundred billion combinations, right? And so it is this unique imaginative thing. Um, and within creative pursuits, it's it's even more so, right? Like you were talking about art, and art's a good one. And there's really a lot of different ways to approach that, right? Because like you were saying, if you're drawing representative, um, with music, it can be the same thing, right? Sometimes I sit down and I start strumming chords on gu- guitar and I think about how the musical key works and I can sort of piece together um, what I think will sound good based off of what I'm actually playing. Mm-hmm. Other times, um, I might be riding in the car and all of a sudden I'll just start imagining, you know, right? And I'll write this whole song in my head. The drums, the bass, the guitar, the vocals, I'll write the entire thing and I'll have it there in my imagination. It doesn't yet exist, but it's there, right? And then I come home and I do it, right? And in some cases, there's varying levels of fidelity. Sometimes it's almost exactly as I imagined it. Other times, as I start playing and realizing um, the limitations of my own playing or discovering um, different creative aspects that embellish it better, doing the actual physical practice of it, it morphs into something different. Mm -hmm. But the imaginative um, aspect of the creativity Mm -hmm. and how that relates to reality and truth is really what she talks about a lot in her. It is. And and you've you've said that you've said that very well. And you've made me think about, well, she's, she is marvelous at putting, the the past strands of existentialism into a context that that doesn't try to simplify it uh, so much as opens it opens it up and she talks about jazz I love jazz I'm not a jazz expert I but I love jazz and and in in her other books the imagination imagination book she's talking about and the existentialism book as well she's talking about how you know, existentialism wasn't, a, it had this aura of, oh, left bank <laughs> coffee shops filled with smoke and, and intellectuals uh, talking with each other and sipping. And well, there, there was that, but, and that was a cultivated image to some extent, but it, was, it went beyond that. Camus was in Algeria and working on oppression and, and very difficult political issues. Uh, and, and then there's, there's uh, Richard Wright and James Baldwin, black authors, who, uh, in, in Baldwin's case, abandoned the United States as a place to live in because in France you were equal. There wasn't the race thing in going on in the same awful ways as in the states, and so that affected so so uh, black or African American existentialism. The idea of how you go into this duality of 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 being who you are, seeking the authenticity of who you are at the same time that you're wrestling against being the other. That's what Simone de Beaufort was talking about with with but it's but it goes beyond that. And Miles Davis, as she points out, had had uh, at once the, the, the great jazz musician said that uh, Sardon had given him some credit for existentialism, but in fact, Sardon loved jazz, and many of the rest did because of its uh, immediacy. That one move 
ahead, not planning it all up, going with what is happening. And sometimes you fall on your face and, and often you don't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Creating something new at the moment. And that's what she says is, is existentialism recognizes human existence as being possible, always transcending what already is. Uh, and, and so evading any sense of trying to be able to pin it down and say, now hmm. you're existentialist. Well, oh, it's a process. Right. We're all works in process and progress. And, and so is the thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the music thing again, right? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, with, with a lot of rock music, the more complicated you make a chord, right? Or the more um, it opens up your, your music to um, different possibilities, right? So if you're playing rock music and, and you're playing a power chord, you just have a first and a fifth. And, and so that's pretty, um, it can be limiting in some ways, but it can also give you some different avenues in other ways. Lots of jazz chords will have, you know, four or more notes in it, which gives you a whole other avenue on how to, how to embellish on. It's kind of like playing checkers and chess, right? So in checkers, all your pieces just have that, the one same move, right? <laughs> but it doesn't really take away from the strategy of the game, no, you know? No, they're, no. they're still both, um, can be very engaging games and you can have varying levels of, of skill and, and they can play out in, in different ways. Um, but yeah, it's, it's this kind of thinking, right? Sort of looking at different things and, and figuring out, and you can tell by her background, um, that she has a lot of multidisciplinary um, connections that she's that she's drawing on, right? And 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 that emphasis on imagination, imagination, and particularly uh, in uh, literature. That that's why I find her work uh, fascinating, refreshing, instructive, and taking existentialism a next step. Because as I said to you before, I've I've pretty much always thought that existentialism was just as current now as it ever ever was and and in formal circles that's you know well that was then that was this this cafe thing going on no 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 so how how can how can looking at the the, the strands of it uh, not be immediate uh, seeking authenticity by not simply going along with everything that you're told but examining things you choose to examine yourself to see how it's going to make you not the person that you were. Mm. The idea of you're tossed into the world, whether for negative, positive, whatever, how you look at it, but you, you arrive in the world. You arrive in a political context, a social context, a familial context. Yeah. Da, da, da. And, and you, and you do things. And to the extent that you just do things because everybody tells you to do them, then you're not being existential. But if you, once you begin to say, wait a minute, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. I came here. I'm going to leave. We all know. I, we all come in and we all leave. And and, and I'm not going to be able to do everything that I thought I was going to do because I I shouldn't be able to because I don't know what the next thing is going to be. I have a project and I have another project and I have many projects at the same time. That's so human. And it's just, just as human for, for somebody coming home working two or three jobs. And the project is to try to stay sane. And, and to get a couple hours of rest and wrestling with the universe about, is this it? Is this what it's all about? Uh, and, and it's not about being atheist. 
of the start certainly was, and, and de Beauvoir, but, but it doesn't require that. Heidegger was, or I'm sorry, uh, Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard wasn't, and, and she points this out. That's what she's saying. No, 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 it's not an agenda-based thing. It's a, how do you, and, uh, do you ask what the meaning of life is? Do you, do you try to better yourself uh, consciously by thinking about what you encounter? Do you choose what you're going to do next, and do you own it? Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we often talk about how philosophy and science aren't at odds. Mm -hmm. Um, can you elaborate on how she really demonstrates their synergy with her work? I'll try. Uh, and, and I'm thinking of one of you, I'm sure you watched it too. It was, it was a shorter question and answer session. And when she talks about the idea of the humanities, the, the, the philosophy and, and writing and theater and art and so on. Finding a more comfortable, seemingly moving away from the idea of truth with a capital T and, and letting that be the fact, factorial focus of science. Science sees renders and comes to conclusion about how something is, how it functions and and what can be done with that. And but mostly just here's this thing. Here's how it works. Here's COVID. Here's how it works. Here's what can some here are some ways to address it. And that's always going to change inductively. But there's a there are truth based fact the fact Practicality, which is a word now, which stuns me anyway, but the factorial, fact-based information. And some people still don't like facts, but facts are there. And seemingly, you know, you read a poem and you say, well, this means this to me. It doesn't mean this to anybody else. So it's an individual response. Existentialism is about the individual, not the vague abstract of the collectivity. But even, even in... Uh, responses to art, one can begin to feel, she says, oh, well, we, we like to say we've abandoned truth, and truth can mean whatever truth means in the arts, but really, when you read a Wallace Stevens poem or Rainer Maria Wilco or any, whoever you read, and that poem speaks to you, what's it speaking? And is that really all that different from what it might be speaking to four other people in the in the same room. And if they're speaking something similar, there's an element of human truth that may be presenting phenomenologically, not drawing conclusions, but but the truth comes in resonating with oneself as individual. That's the existential part. The truth comes in describing how the thing is affecting one. That's the phenomenological part. Hmm. And and that can lead to a revelation or revealing a thought that you didn't even realize you had. Yeah. And, and you know, she looks at, um, you know, there's some cognitive neuroscience and some things that she looks mm -hmm. at. So mm -hmm. um, it's something that we talk about a lot here, right? Philosophy is, is the foundation of the sciences. You know, you, owe, you have philosophy comes first and then it's sciences right. either we're first <laughs> you know they <laughs> they bring in the capital t truth or they they revise things mm -hmm. but that's not the end of philosophy philosophy then starts laying the bricks in the road and then science comes in and mortars them in place yes. 
behind it. You know, there, there's a yellow brick road. It has yellow bricks. I see the yellow bricks. I, I, I describe the yellow bricks, the texture and the and the roughness of it. They tell me all the yellow brick roads lead to Oz sooner or later. <laughs> but all I see right now are the yellow bricks. I'm describing how those yellow bricks are affecting me. I'm being phenomenological. Science can say, here's what the yellow bricks are made of. Here's why they're yellow. Here's, why, you know, what conclusions do we draw about them? Well, they're made of this, they have this, and, and therefore maybe they came from such and such a place where manufactured and, and whatever. There's truth in all of that. But she's saying, well, it doesn't seem on the surface, maybe, I mean, she doesn't use the Oz thing. I'm being goofy and using the Oz thing, but the, the, there may be truth in the dread one feels the closer one gets to Oz. Do I know what Oz is? I've been told what it's going to be, but is that how it's going to be? But I'm still going toward it. There's the existential part, right? <laughs> I'm choosing to walk the bloody <laughs> yellow brick road, knowing that the witch is out there to get me or the monsters are there or who, whoever it happens to be. But I'm still going to go. I'm going to go through the dark woods, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because I choose to. Why? Because I want to transcend where I am right now. Yeah. And and <laughs> I was reading an article this morning. It was kind of cool, actually. It was talking about um, how to increase your creativity. And it was bringing in some studies. And they're finding like, okay, well, there's actually a part in your brain. And I can't remember what the acronym stood for. I think it's ACC, though, that um, is responsible for creative breakthroughs you know they did a study where they gave people um some words and then it had them try to find another word that was in uh, associated with all of the the previous ones and they found that okay well when people had this aha moment it was generated from the the acc here and then the next thing they tried to figure out was okay well how do we stimulate thought in the acc and you want to know what they found was that the best way to do it was to be happier. <laughs> Think about that, right? Because that's happiness, a very subjective thing, yes. but with very um, science based, very, yes, very science based results, right? And I anecdotally, I've experienced that in my life, right? You know, recently I've, I've tried to do a good job of, of being mindful and, and trying to be, um, more forgiving of people and, and, you know, and, and all of these different things and living in the moment and doing all that. And it makes you a happier person, right? And the happier I get, what, you know, I, the more creative I've become. And the science backs that up because what the science says, the happier you, happier you are, the more, um, open your mind is to, um, strange hunches, I think is how they put it yeah, in the yeah, article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, things that are out of the ordinary. You're, you don't have the blinders on mm -hmm. as, as much. So if you're happy, you're more likely to say, well, that thought's weird. Let's follow that for a minute, right? Then that's what I think, uh, Jennifer Gossetti Ferenci would, uh, Ferenci would say, I think, because in one part of her book, she talks about, uh, Camus and, and creative rebellion. And she's, and she's, and, and creative rebellion is, is an interesting phrase in itself, but it's what, what you were just describing. You're not talking about a passive happiness. Oh, hey, I'm cool. I'm mellow. You're cool. I don't want to do anything. I mean, we all want those moments sometimes, but that's not, 
the the active joy that you're describing. There's the the transcendence, and 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 she's saying, and this is why you just set this off in me. She's in part in looking at the past, uh, both of poetry and the poets that affected the existentialists, and how their novels affected others, and so on. That as as you engage in creative conversation. Which in social circumstances can be what we've heard so often, attentive listening. Not just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm glad it's up at you, but I'm really thinking about fitting in. What could I do next? And where am I going to go? No, no, no. That, what are you saying? And how can, uh, how can I engage with that to emphasize the freedom of choice that you have because of what you've said? The creative rebellion is to say we have a whole lot of choice. Yeah. And this comes back to some of the examples we've talked about earlier in the show, right? When I was talking about the the painting that they were showing in, in the episode, right? Mm-hmm. It's just this painting of hay bales, you know, and, and how a lot of people think it's boring. Boring is really a state of mind, right? It's not this thing that actually exists because you can look at that painting and you can pick out these details and it can become very interesting. <laughs> a cow, you know, something that's that's very commonplace, you know, as my my wife's a runner, she's running and she's just noticed, well, when I start running, the cows run up to the fence and they want to, they want to look at me, right? Looking at the behavioral aspects of them or looking at, you know, certain physical features, cows can become very interesting. Right? Especially if you start becoming empathic and you start thinking about what is this cow going through? Do I, is, is it possible to, to walk past a, a large scale farm and see cows that aren't in pastures? Almost ever, because there's too much of a deadline and too much got to create too much milk. And so they just pause for a moment. And what is it like to be this creature who is living in this very small cell, looking out at the world? And it's the sum total of its life is going to be producing milk and then becoming meat. Hmm. Oh, I might feel a little differently after I walk past it that farm despite all of the messages about milk and everything else you know that those are those are there there's truth in 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 that but but it's not just as simple as that there are multiple truths going on in that encounter even with a cow yeah and so these things that we think of as being simplistic or boring it it is a mindset and i think like you were saying this idea of of being creative or imaginative or you know and how happiness relates to it is it's an engagement, right? So, mm-hmm. it, you know, taking a look at these things and saying, okay, well, what's what's going on here, right? And you can do it with, you know, and it, it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a happy thing. Like you were saying with the cows, that's something that might lead you down a path that isn't all, of, all that um, positive. But then, if you're if you're a philosopher, you know, right, and your and your mind is making these connections, you start to say, well, you know, what's necessary for human survival? What does human survival even mean in the grand scheme of things? You know, <laughs> on yeah. an individual level, we're all going to die. You know, on on a species level, we're all going to die at some point. The universe is going to die, right. and then it makes you examine those emotions that you're feeling to begin with. Right, I'm feeling bad for the cow, but then you're looking at everything as a whole and you're thinking well what is what actually is going on when i'm feeling bad and empathetic and is is how does that relate what is the message that i should be taking away what's the truth 
that I'm finding through this imaginative act. And those are the questions that the very asking of them transcends you as a transcendent thing out of the, the state of being you were in before you started with them. As an individual, how am I responding to this? Why am I responding this way? Oh, there are a number of reasons I'm responding this way. Oh, but I still like hamburger. Okay, nobody's telling you you can't still like hamburger. But maybe stopping and looking at that creature uh, causes one to say, I need to appreciate what you are. Well, there were a lot of some people, you know, I understand this too. It's, no, I don't want to think about what I'm, I don't want to think about what I'm eating. And Eastern traditions and, and, and traditions of, of gratefulness suggest to one that one should think very hard about what one is eating. And that crosses over with science. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, you know, you can look at it if, if we had fields full of, of dogs that we were butchering to eat and people eat, eat dogs in other yeah, parts of the places. world, right? You know, I think that that would affect people very differently here. And you have to ask yourself, well, what is that saying? Am I, what is the cognitive or emotional difference between the subjective experience of a cow and a dog? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And how, how could I know it? Mm -hmm. And is it really that different based off of what we can observe? And so then, you know, what makes, so what makes a dog special? It's really a selfish sort of It's an individual connection, and right? selfish connection. What does the dog do for me? What does the cow do for me? There is certainly that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, so, it, so it's, it is uh, what she's emphasizing. I think what, what Cassetti Frenchy is, is emphasizing, among many other things, is, is that that attentiveness to being, not passively, we can't all be active all the time. She's not suggesting that either, but that attentiveness to Surrounding to the choices I'm making, to thinking about those choices, uh, can lead to creative transformation. Not a, a, a painting to put on a wall necessarily, just, oh, I slowed down, I reflected. Hmm, I think I've been this way during most of the day. Maybe I can change the way I am today. Yeah. And, and, and that's creative. Yeah. Uh, so I had a question written in here. We might have just answered it. Um, and it's kind of funny because I wrote this as we were heading into the speculative portion of the okay. podcast, but we've really done it the whole time. So the question I had was, you and I always enjoyed the speculative portion of the podcast. What do you think a SETI Frenchie would, would say about that? About enjoying the, the speculative part? Yeah. Uh, that, that it's, I, I think... I hope someday we can get on the podcast. Well, that'd be really cool. You're I'm going to try to get that. her on. That would be amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I love meeting other minds and beings, other realized human beings. It's just amazing. So I think she might say that enjoying the speculative means taking what you have established phenomenologically, epistemologically, here are facts, here are things we are observing, here's my encounter with this object. And, and how is that object affecting where I'm, what I'm thinking? That's speculative. How, how might that take me to a different, how might that cause me to move into a new project? How might it affect a project I'm working on currently? 
I, I like that existentialism in its complexity, all its different flavors, still comes back to that. What's the next project? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does our philosophy say about the relation of the humanities to truth and, and reality? We touched on it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she used well. This is this makes me think of your novel, which I continue to enjoy. That um, since we are not gods, she, she says this more than once. Right? We 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 aren't dislocated from the space and time in which we exist. We we can attempt to dislocate ourselves entirely, but ultimately we are interactive with whatever environment and 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 so if the creative enterprise is is being consciously interactive and making something new whether it's a thought a song a, a painting then it it is both well, it's both existential and, and phenomenological, but it causes one to be in a different relationship constantly. It's a process. It, it's 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 very much like um, Ibram X. Kendi uh, has written a remarkably instructive things for for me as a white privileged reader uh, uh, regarding racism, and he says there you know, there most people are not. You know, strictly racist. This is a black, marvelous, thinking, grand writer, complex human being. This thing that you did is racist because you chose to do this rather than that. It was a choice, rather uh, perhaps from upbringing and so on. But you can make conscious choices. Well, that's that's existentialism. And that's art. Do I? How do I know when to stop when I'm sketching? I have a problem with this sometimes, but I've been learning. You know, I've got over. No, wait. Then you stray into. I'm putting things that I think ought to be there, but I'm not. So it goes back to that. Does that answer what you were asking? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's. A, I think that's a good answer. So, um, in in our attempt, um, you know, with the podcast, we always like throwing in little things here and there, which is our imaginative way of, of mm -hmm. trying to keep things fresh. You and I have talked about um, trying to uh, maybe do uh, um, some videos looking at uh, <laughs> different different scenes from, from movies and kind of commenting on them. So um, we'll, uh, we'll see in the future. I don't know if maybe, you know, maybe we'll do it the next time. Maybe it'll be a couple episodes from now, but we'll try our, our mystery philosophy theater 4,000. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, that, that'll be a lot of fun. I want, can I toss one more thing in yeah. here? Cause this is just, here's, because this is an example, I think that pulls this all together. And, and, and you, I just interrupted your closing and I, <laughs> but, uh, today here in, in the specific location of Perry, New York, a specific date, the mayor of Perry, uh, who was instrumental in helping lots of things happen in this community together, but there's a farmer's market. And the mayor happened to put on Facebook or Instagram that uh, today will, will be a Chester A. Arthur theme. 
Well, Chester A. Arthur was the 21st president of the United States who ascended to the presidency out of the vice presidency because of an assassination. <laughs> he was a Republican at the time in 1881. He happened to have lived in Perry from the time he was six till the time he was 10. His father was a Baptist minister. There are a lot of people who don't realize this. I didn't realize this until from that posting, which my wife pointed out to me, I then went to look some things up and and made a decision. I talked to her. We laughed. This was a creative decision. I said, okay, so what am I going to do? I'm going to put a Chester Arthur quotation on a piece of paper, pin it to my, to my pockets, and walk into the farmer's market. And, and I, and, and I, I did that. I was rushing because I wanted to get to the podcast, but I just had to, had to do this. And I, and people stopped and looked. And I think, oh, what's, what's this? Is this about this, this protest today, September 18th? Is this about another political thing? And, and, and I could just see people hesitating, not walking over to me, but a couple people did. And one of the vendors looked at it. What's that? And I said, it's a Chester A. Arthur quotation. Who's that? <laughs> you know, and, and so I chose this quotation. The health of the people is of supreme importance. All measures looking to their protection against the spread of contagious diseases and to the increase of our sanitary knowledge for such purposes deserve attention of Congress. Wow. <laughs> You know, so so it, the the creative moment was only in trying to decorate myself, going into this place to acknowledge something that people have said. Okay, let's and to have a conversation, and I and I think that that's partly what Cassetti, Cassetti, Ferenci, and and others are talking about is to consider what you're going to do in the moment. Yeah, and that's that is a good um, point because the same article I was talking about earlier that was. Um, you know, talking about how to inspire uh, creative thinking and, and going into the science of it and stuff. Um, a couple of the other things that they said to help with that were, um, first off, um, meditation, a certain type of meditation to keep you in the moment. Mm -hmm. And the other one was making connections, right? Yeah. Reaching out to people and you know experiencing how other people are thinking about things and how other people are interacting with things. Which is exactly what you're doing, right? You know, <laughs> now you know there's, there there might be positive interactions, there might be negative interactions, but whatever interactions you have, it's going to make you think about it, right? And it's and any time it makes you think about something differently, that's an act of creativity and imagination, yes, it is. and that sort of lends to our our view of of truth in mm -hmm. some ways. Mm -hmm. All right, until next time, keep popping.